0: Welcome to the Product and Founders podcast, a podcast about product managers and founders in tech about their journey to build products people love. My name is Elie Chafois, I'm a product manager and former founder, and I will be your host. I'm also writing an ebook about how to build great digital products. If you wanna know more, go to productandfounders.com. Today's guest is my good friend, Bernard Vargas. He founded several startups before we started working together as PMs at Klarna, a big fintech startup from Sweden, until he left to join Facebook in London. He is now the CEO of Human Labdas, a startup he founded that builds custom tooling to support internal workflows. And what that means, how his experience at Klarna and Facebook is helping him and more you will hear in this podcast. And please always remember to turn off your WhatsApp before you start recording these things. All right. So Mr. Bernard, welcome to the first ever episode and maybe even the MVP episode as we just discussed. Of the Product and Founders podcast. How are you doing, man? Are you in London right now?
1: Yeah, I'm in London. Um, I've been in London throughout the whole lockdown, and yeah, it's been good so far, um, despite the circumstances, of course. Uh, but can't complain.
0: Okay, glad to hear that, man. It's it's actually funny, like you know, nor- like normally we kind of communicate in Spanish. Uh, I mean, not when we're working together, because obviously we were colleagues before, but like outside of work. So it's kind of funny to be talking to you again uh, in English. Um but I guess yeah, it's also easier to talk in English about work stuff even for you maybe English like versus Catalan or Spanish.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been you know English has been my main primary primary language um for, you know, the professional side of things um throughout my career. Um and so, you know, when it comes to communicating in business settings, I think I can definitely um make my points and, and get them across much easier and, and more crisply in English for sure than in Spanish or Catalan. So
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So if we talk about Spanish or Catalan, you grew up in Spain, studied there as well, partially studied in the UK. Uh, but if you look back, what do you think drove you into entrepreneurship?
1: I think what what drove me to to entrepreneurship and to building was this desire to um Create um, and this interest in technology. So you know, since, since I was since I was a little kid, I I was the Lego kid kind of guy. I was always um, you know building things in Lego. Uh, it was my favorite toy uh, when I was a little kid. And at the same time, I was always attracted to technology, and I loved to tinker with with gadgets and the like. And yeah, I guess at some point I just realized that I could combine both um both things into building tech products. Um I would say that's that's where my entrepreneurship bug comes from. Um it's not so much about building uh, a business for the sake of b- building a business, it's it's more um you know, being able to create things and, and bring value to people. And, and if, it, if, if it comes in a way that's sustainable, economically sustainable and, and profitable um, as, a, as a side effect, then awesome.
0: Cool. So you started your first startup project during studies. It was a social app that based on various data points connected people with similar interests called Joiner. However, in the first year, you decided to call it quits. Uh, why was that?
1: Traction is always very hard getting getting your first users is always very hard. and you know while we were working on 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 acquiring our first users and getting traction and getting usage out of the product, um we were finding um lots of first of all struggles to get more and more users into the platform. So I think um when we shut it down, we had got to two thousand users or something like that, um primarily in Barcelona, but not exclusively. And, you know, so scaling it up and up um, was proving to be harder and harder. You know, we were studying and we it was very hard to combine, like building this and growing it and, and also um, getting good enough grades to keep going um, with our studies. It was proving to be very, very hard. And at the same time, you know, we we were. Um, we're running into growing struggles, and, and the app was a bit buggy, and we had to spend a lot more time into polishing it. And it just there there was just there just wasn't enough time. And at some point, um, you know, especially our parents weren't very happy with it either, because uh, obviously your parents want you to do well at school, and they don't care about anything else. Um, especially if it doesn't make you money, because um, if anything is the opposite, you you need um, you know someone to fund you, right? Um, and so, at some point, we just decided that it was not feasible um to to continue and we we shut it down um but yeah, it was an amazing an amazing journey nonetheless for sure
0: and what would be your biggest like learning from that then
1: One lesson that I took is building in the b two c space so business to customer mm-hmm. uh, but especially in the social space is really really hard um because you're competing for, for someone's attention. And there are so many apps out there competing for someone's attention, um, from Facebook to Instagram, to Snapchat, to Twitter, to TikTok, um, Pinterest. Um, and all these apps are, they're, they're, they're working great because obviously they're backed by amazing engineers that build really solid products, and designers who build the best experiences and, and so on. but also. Because of network effects, they have enough of a, you know, critical mass of users to make the product very valuable. And if you're starting a new social product, um, you don't have those network effects that are so valuable. Um, and so when you need to bootstrap this critical mass, it's incredibly brutal. Say A B to C, you know, it's 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 something that you have to be really sure about. Uh, before going for it because it's yeah, the, the odds are always against you when you do a startup, but I would say even more so when you do a B2C. Um, and then I think another lesson that I took, and especially back then, maybe things are improving now, but um, it's it's probably not very wise to build a startup in Spain um, because there's there aren't that many people that have really made it, and so there is very few people out there that can advise you on what, what the right things to do are and mentor you and so on, which is super important. Uh, but also there's no capital.
0: Yeah, then London definitely is a better place to be. So after graduating, you started another company called assist.ai and you participated in Entrepreneur First, which is a program that brings together talented individuals and helps them with starting a company and how to do that. Uh, and in my opinion, one of the best programs in Europe out of all the, I don't know if it's really an incubator, but all of the incubators, et cetera, out there. Uh, and let's start with the EF experience. How did EF help you in starting your next startup, uh, which was assist.ai?
1: Yeah, so I think there are many things that EF helped us with. Uh, I would say the, the two main contributions that they had to our uh, journey was, and that's besides the financial support, of course. Um, but that was, they got us our first user, that was huge. Um, so obviously when you're starting out, and especially if you sell to businesses, if you're on the B2B space, um, one of the downsides of being on the B2B space is, um, you're selling to, to someone, um, who's probably harder, harder to, 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 to convince and get their trust, um, or get them to trust you. Um, because. It's not them that they're a user, it's their business that's a user um and so in a way you know you're you're and especially if your product is supposed to be useful um, you're actually a dependency on that business you're you're creating a new dependency for that business, and so if you fail, you might make that business fail in a way um, which basically means that building trust is harder and the stakes are usually higher and so you know if if you have someone. Already gets you this first user who automatically is trusting you and who automatically uh, believes in what you're doing, and and who in turn will, you know, install your product and use it and give you feedback. That's huge. Um, Not just because of that, but also because it overrides, gives you a case study, uh, an example of a successful user that you can use to repeatedly sell to the second, third, fourth customer. So that, that was definitely incredibly valuable. Um, the second thing that I think, yeah, really helped us out with. And I think that's the case with most, um, techie founders is they really, they really taught us, um, all the things that you probably need to know. If you want to build a startup like sales, marketing, um customer development, all these things that if you I've seen that pattern a lot and i've I've been in that sort of situation myself where um you know as an engineer you're you're very focused on solutions you're very focused on on building things out of your own intuition uh without having clarity on what problem you're solving and and who this problem is for. And um, without having this clear picture, you might get um in in a problematic situation where um you've built the wrong thing for the wrong person and, and you're kind of like, you know, in in in, in a in a dead end. And um, this can be fatal to a startup. Um so having someone who's done it before who's advising you on, hey, you know, you really need to talk to people before uh, writing a line of code. Um you really need to you know ask questions in this way. You don't need you you shouldn't ask leading questions. You shouldn't try to, you know, prime uh your 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 interviewees. You shouldn't try to um you know pull questions out of them. Um even if it hurts you and even if they say what you don't want to hear, that's actually good for you because that means that you're not, you're not gonna waste more time building something that no one wants. Um, so building this sort of thicker skin and 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 yeah, making yourself uncomfortable—that's um, something that they're really good at teaching you. Um, and I certainly learned a lot from that.
0: Okay, awesome. Uh, that's pretty cool. So one of the things you mentioned was that EF helped you in defining the problem you're solving. So what was the problem you were trying to solve with the startup you were working on during and after EF, which was uh, assist.ai?
1: The problem that we were addressing was um, in. In customer service functions, um, so, you know, customer service at at an internet company uh, or an e-commerce, the job is usually done through ticketing software such as Zendesk um, or Freshdesk um, or Intercom. And if you look at the sort of problems that these customer service people are solving, they're almost all the time solving the same for the same problems and questions, um, which makes the job for them very boring because they're always solving the same problems there's yeah. no um, intellectual challenges in there, um, but also it's it's very inefficient for the business because they have people um, who are really good at dealing with nuance with new problems with ambiguity, um, essentially doing the job that a machine should be doing yeah um, it's always you know. Surfacing the same the same things um, so our our premise was if we can leverage machine learning um, to tap into these previously produced answers um we can make the process of solving um already resolved lower value um, questions and problems much faster and much more efficient um, and so we we built a product we built a plugin for a ticketing uh, solution out there that basically did that and yeah so we had many companies install our product and what we usually saw was when the company installed the product um, the agents would use it um, and what the product exactly did was whenever an agent would go about um, opening up a ticket we would supply them with a few candidate answers
0: so I can imagine someone listening to this because I already know, but someone listening thinking, hey, but that sounds like a good idea and potentially good business. So why didn't this work out? Was the need you were solving not big enough or didn't you solve it in the right way maybe?
1: Yeah, so I have this. So essentially we're talking about product market fit, um, which is you know, what all startups are trying to get to Um, and my mental model of product market fit is if you have product market fit of course then you can raise money you're successful your revenues keep growing you can repeatedly sell to more companies Um, most startups who haven't raised a series a are still looking for product market fit Um, all startups that haven't raised a seed round are looking for product market fit Um, and the way the way I I break down product market fit is into two areas, um, two kinds of risks uh, that you're looking at addressing. Um, on the one side you have product risk, and on the other side you have market risk. Um, market risk speaks about problem, all things. You know, from do you know do you have a crisp? precise definition of the problem you're solving. Uh, do you know who has this problem? Meaning, you know, do you know what, what the audience for your problem is? Um, do you know how to find them? Which kind of relates to sales, all this sort of stuff. Um, is it big enough? You know, Maybe you're only selling to two people um, all over the world and that's too small a market. So these are all market risks. Um, on the product risk side of things, you have things like, um, do you know, which solution is going to alleviate the problem you're after? Um, can you build it? Um, and these sort of things, right? In our case, we, we found the real problem, and we knew how to find users. Um, so market risk was pretty much eliminated for us. Mm-hmm. Um, where we failed was we didn't, we didn't build a solution that worked. For the problem, the value of machine learning is it approximates what a human would do uh, in a you know at virtually no cost, and um, and so you know when a lot of people think about a machine learning product and uh, what a lot of buyers think about buying a machine learning product, they think about hey I'm gonna get uh, you know I'm gonna get the same performance that a human would give me but at no cost so it's awesome boom no. uh, but it never is like that uh, or it rarely is like that. And and then the problem is, you know, are, are you getting are you are you gonna deliver high enough accuracy um to you know give more value to the user than cost you're creating to for the user? Um cost in the sense of each mistake your model makes might be interpreted as as costs. Um, and so for us, we we didn't get there. Um yeah. And yeah, that, that, was, that was certainly the, the problem. Um, and what we saw was that at the beginning, they would try to use our product, but then um, they would see that um, you know, sometimes our suggestions wouldn't be correct, um, which meant that they would have to spend extra time reading um, suggestions that they wouldn't even be able to use, um, yeah. creating waste um and then they lose faith into in, into the product which makes a lot of sense um that made us realize that the bar for accuracy uh for this particular type of product was very very high um and that was kind of like a, a deal breaker for for all the companies um so yeah i think at that point is when we realized that um it was pro- probably very unlikely that we would be able to um, raise the bar, the accuracy bar, enough um, mm. to get to a desirable state. And um, we just figured that whilst there were other problems that we had encountered throughout our journey that we could potentially look at solving, um, we hadn't. We had been working on these for long enough to probably want to move on to something else.
0: And was it hard for you to? quote-unquote, give up?
1: Yeah, I think at at some point, um, if things aren't working out for you, uh, this just keeps... um, It just takes a toll on you, you know? And you can only go so far uh, through bad times and misery. Mm -hmm. Um, Some can go further, some can go for not as long and um, but eventually you, you you kinda you kinda need to um shut down and move on um it's it's actually it's it's i would say sh- giving up on an idea um and and shutting it down is a is a brave act that many people take longer to 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 make than they should mm-hmm. um And that was the case for us. So I think we could have even shut down earlier um, than than we did. Mm -hmm. And we shut down later than we probably should, um, despite having growing revenues. Yeah. Because at the end, the underlying metrics showed that we were at a dead end. And...
2: As a founder, um,
1: you 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 have a you have a tank of motivation that yeah. um, you know keeps draining and draining, and uh, at some point you you can't you can't just um, you can pivot, but you can't keep endlessly pivoting because at some point you burn out, mm. and at some point you just need to give up and acknowledge that. You know, uh, you might want to work on something else and start from zero. Um,
0: yeah, but you also considered selling, right? Why didn't that follow through?
1: So usually in, 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 in software business uh, sales or acquisitions, um, there, are three, there are three components um, of the business that might be getting acquired. Um, there is the business itself. If, you're, if you have a business that's profitable that's making 50 million you know um, 50 million dollars in revenue every year, uh, that's a business that might be very valuable um, and that you just want to have it you know, keep it running right and generate profits for you. Um, that is one thing. but then for smaller startups and that's usually not the case, so this first component goes away, then there's two other components. There's the IP, the intellectual property. Um, you know, what's the technology that I'm buying? Um, is it a valuable piece of technology that is very hard to develop? And so by purchasing it, acquiring it from another company, am I uh shortcutting my way into uh whatever other initiatives I have uh for my business, right? Um again, the smaller startup is and the 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 shorter their duration has been the less likely that's the case, um, and so that leaves you with the third component, which is the team. Maybe what's special about the business is not the business itself, it's not the technology itself, but the people. Um, and so you might want to pay a premium for hiring this already consolidated, existing, well-functioning team uh, as opposed to hiring them, uh, you know, hiring individuals that put together might make uh, the same thing because the sum is greater than the parts. Um, and usually for for very small startups, most acquisitions tend to happen for this third reason or for a combination of reasons, but the third one's always it's always the most important one. And in our case, and I think that tends to happen with you know people who burn out. Um, usually one doesn't want to remain in the space um if they're fed up with it. Yeah. Um and then you know there's there's other constraints like um what are the conditions of the acquisition? Um what are the, the restrictions that the the sort of like golden handcuffs which is quite a thing, uh geographic limitations. Um and yeah like I, I don't we, we did explore it um but eventually uh, we just feared that it wouldn't be that desirable of an outcome for us. And mm-hmm. then we could find better outcomes uh, just, you know, um, through our own individual uh, sort of paths.
0: Okay. Thanks for sharing, man. So then we're now going to a short sponsored message. This program is brought to you by BMW i8. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm like nice getting your sponsors. <laughs>
0: yeah, that would have been a nice sponsor too, right? BMW. Oh yeah, like you the... you bet. Yeah. <laughs> hey, no, but um okay, let's go a bit more into um your PM experience, like after running your own company uh, at Klarna and Facebook. You close down, uh, assist.ai, burned out. I can imagine like it you know, you had to recharge the battery for a bit. Then you decided to not dive into an entrepreneurial adventure again, but to apply to product management positions. And (laughs) I I remember you applied to around 40 of them (laughs) and almost everyone rejected you. Uh, And you only got to interview with like a few of them and then Klarna made you an offer. So sometimes people describe being a product manager as close to being a founder, but then within a company. And I know in some companies it is like that. How was that for you uh, becoming a product manager?
1: That's a great question because I feel like what I what I started doing as a product manager at Lorna had nothing to do with what I had been doing as a founder. Okay. Um and the reason is the reason is when when you're when you're a product manager of a team, um first of all, you usually operate in a much structured environment um when you're a founder you have no structure whatsoever um you just do you just work on whatever is the most important thing for that day whether that's you know getting you um you know 10 more demos for your product or getting you five more users or you know making a design for something or building a campaign for blah or um whereas a uh, tech companies especially the the bigger you are the bigger the bigger they are usually the more that's the case um, you're responsible for a much more well defined narrower domain uh which is usually making sure um the team knows what to work on um and and, and there's our responsibilities, but at least you know when I started clownona, my job was mostly making sure the team knows what to work on. And making sure what the team knows to work on essentially means make sure that you know all the work is in well um, scoped tickets and that the tickets are uh, sorted in the right uh, priority order and that yeah if people need help from other teams you remove the blockers and that sort of stuff um, which in a way makes the work that makes the work um a lot more political and diplomatic rather than creative um and due to this ticket oriented sort of structure you're also uh way more on the micro and not so much on the macro um so it's it's quite different and then you know you're you're not building anything because your team does it for you and and the sort of things that happen when you're at a bigger team in you know, a more sort of like middle management position so it was very different
0: and so if you then look at your job as a pm has your experience as a founder helped you in doing that job even though it was different
1: um good point yes yeah yeah um, i would i would say so um because obviously when you're a founder you you're you have much greater coverage um over responsibilities. You have a much broader scope in terms of what you own and what you're responsible for than as a PM. But um, the kind of things that PM is responsible for, um, the founder as an owner of a super set of responsibilities also is an owner of. Um, and so things like translating a high level strategic goal into Projects um, and features. Um, that is something that, as a founder, and as a founder, you set the strategy yourself, but you also turn the strategy into work. Um, and that is something that you, you're doing all the time. So um, it was definitely helpful um, to have done that before um, when I landed my first product management job. Um, then Another aspect that I think helps a lot is especially if you're a technical founder is if you're a product manager, you're working with engineers and you need your engineers to trust you and to respect you and the fastest way to earn this respect is to prove to them that you're one of them and that you know what it is to, to do their job um, any that's the reason why any manager um, within a function has first been. You know, an individual contributor within that function this is the only way to get respect and to be able to be helpful uh, to your team. Um, so I feel that if you're a technical founder and you've actually, you know, got your hands dirty building stuff, um, that's also incredibly valuable because it gets your team to trust you from, you know, day, day one.
0: How would a non-technical uh, founder uh, be able to build that trust according to you then?
1: Um there's there's many ways um so so first of all i I think it depends on what 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 a non-technical founder it depends on what qualifies as as non-technical first of all like uh is having an engineering degree a precondition for qualifying as technical probably not is having built something with code before a precondition to be technical maybe um but i would say Even if you just understand the language that they're talking, even if you just code as a hobby, um, that already gets you very far. Um, Because it means that you have some empathy with their craft. Um, But otherwise, there's many other ways, right? Like, you know, you you don't get hired as a PM and and your your engineering peers won't just respect you because you know what their job is about, right? Like at the end, you still have to bring them value. and you bring them value through ensuring that they work on the right things, uh, through ensuring that the things that they deliver make a meaningful impact, and through ensuring that, yeah, that they're that they're successful. And I feel like that takes longer uh, to to prove because you don't just make an engineer's work meaningful in one day, and um, so it takes longer. But I I feel like this is the actual this is the ultimate um, way of being successful with your team, yeah. Um, even if you know regardless of whether you're technical or not. Um, so I guess being technical is a shortcut, but um, it's not.
0: That definitely makes things easier. Yeah. So could you tell a bit more about like how, for example, you know PM role or like culture in general between Klarna and Facebook were different.
1: Um. Product management at Klarna and product management at Facebook have little to do with each other. Um, if, if you look at the nature of the of the PM job, at, and by the way, I have two data points on how these two companies, you know, on what the craft means for these two companies. Um, it might work differently at our companies even. Um, but if you look at Klarna, uh, what product management means is you have this sort of top-down management style where you know the, the executive team, especially the CEO, the CPO, they're very visionary. Um, they exactly know where the company should head towards. And the PMs, the engineering managers, uh, they're needed to make that vision a reality and to focus on executing. So it's, it's very execution-oriented. Um, but then if you look at how Facebook works, Um, It has nothing to do with that. Um, Facebook PMs are the opposite. They're mostly strategic. They mostly focus on the high level. Um, And I think that happens as a result of two things. Um, One, which is the executive team has responsibility over too many different teams to be able to drive things top down um it's just not feasible so then if 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 top down doesn't work you have to rely on bottoms up um and bottoms up is driven by pms um the other the other thing is at, at facebook um everything is measurable everything is data driven fact driven um and so because data is the truth not the ceo data is the truth mm. um as long as the approach to using data and, and measuring your success with data is sensible and everyone agrees on that it's sensible
2: yeah
1: um that's all you need to you know know what to do um because data tells you mm-hmm. and know whether you're successful or not because data tells you um so, so, and I feel like that's, that's the only way you can function when you're bottom's up is that um, you, you, need to, you need to rely on, on the data and, and use data as the ultimate source of truth. And so what happens is that the, the product culture at Facebook is insanely data-driven um, because at the end you're basing what you do on data and you're basing uh, the, the proof of what you've done, namely results on data. Yeah. Um, and you don't focus on the low level as much because, and that's as a result of a different thing, which is Facebook's uh, crazy high uh, hiring bar. Um, if you hire the best of the best in any field, um, you can trust them over full ownership on what they're doing, and you can trust them to independently be able to accomplish. things that they're tasked with yeah so then tickets kanban boards stop mattering um because you know that if you give them uh a much larger higher level goal they will still be able to um, deliver it um and that makes the job of a pm completely different it makes it way more strategic and, and and less execution based although it still is but um even execution on its own is way more high level. You would never get into the weeds of, of the specifics of what an engineer, what an engineer is doing. Because um, mm-hmm. you don't need to, and it prevents you from doing other work. So,
0: yeah. What do you mean then uh, by strategic in this case?
1: Yeah. So, the way a PM's job works um, at Facebook is as a PM, you're given a problem. And this problem will be one word or one sentence. Like, you know, we, they even, they even use this technique for product interviews. Um, Like maybe they'll tell you, hey, we want to get into, we want to get into. Sports. M- yeah, sports <laughs> or, you know, m- movies, movie theaters. And that's it. That's the problem space. That's as much information as you're going to be given by the executive team. Yeah. um The you know Facebook has hired you to to think, you know. um And so you know if if you ask uh, an exec to tell you which direction to go, uh, you're not going to be valuable to them yeah. because you know, you're being paid to think through these and and look at all the angles and perspective and and collect all this information and then process it and distill it, synthesize it into whatever uh you know makes most sense. And whatever makes most sense, that's the strategy, right? Um yeah. So that's that's what I mean by strategic. So it's it's mostly figuring out what to do and and being convincing about why uh what you're proposing is is the best Thing to do for for the budget that you've been given, which takes the the shape of team members and other contributors.
0: Last year you left Facebook and then started working on Human Lambdas, the startup that you're running now, and that builds something that allows companies to easily and maybe even people without technical knowledge to easily build internal custom tooling uh, to support manual workflows and maybe in the future optimize slash automate them even. Uh, you told me you had the idea when you were already with uh or still with Facebook. So how did you validate this idea?
1: Yeah, so I knew that I knew that if I wanted to live my very comfortable job, as you can imagine, um to take a leap into the wild. Um it might as well be well worth it. Yeah. Um, and so what I told myself is, um, Hey, you need to validate this before you, you know, you resign. Um, cause there's, there's no way back, right? Like it's, once the, once the decision's done, you're making a commitment probably for at least one year, maybe, you know, 10 years, maybe for my whole life, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, the longer the commitment is, the more likely it is that it's working out. So then these decisions starts mattering less. But, you know, in the worst of all cases, um, I'm not just losing a job, but I'm going to commit to a year of, you know, not making any money and not being able to go back and all this sort of stuff. So it had to be well worth it. So what I did was I I got in touch with people in my network who I knew were working um, in mostly machine learning. Um, Because at the time, I was mostly thinking about MLS, you know, data data labeling, as you said, or data-related sort of operations um, as a field. And that's when I got conviction, or when I got the conviction that maybe um, I needed to to, to make, to pull the trigger, which was most of the people I spoke to, um, they had built their own internal tools at their jobs. To deal with with their internal tasks, internal processes uh, for dealing with their problem. Um, so in a way, all these companies had built their own bespoke internal tooling. Um, and when I looked at what they had built and what they cared about and the sort of problems that they were addressing with that tooling, the overlap was massive. Mm. Um, and and you know having such a big common denominator. That's what gave me the conviction that hey, you know, like this is something that can be built as a product and it's gonna help all these use cases. Um and yeah, like it, it makes sense. It makes sense. So let's do it.
0: Okay. Uh so that that was that the only thing you did then, uh talking to those people or like did you do some sort of like, you know, wider market assessment or like, you know, some calculations. Okay, how do we think the business, how big do we think the business opportunity is? How much would it cost me to, you know, build this? Or was it just, you know, I've talked to these people. This was great. There we go.
1: It was mostly the latter because getting a few data points, getting some evidence um, on a market that, that it's, Obvious to be more generalizable than those few data points that's enough proof Um, usually for you to intuitively believe that you're working on something that can be very big Hmm. Um, of course that that varies that varies quite a bit on a case-by-case basis probably
0: but okay it was generalizable to different cases did you look at total addressable market for example
1: Um, I think one data point that I had that was sort of maybe a a mild, relatively weak extrapolation of time was, you know, there's been these two companies um, in the space. One of them got acquired for nine figures and one of them um, raised a monster round at a unicorn valuation. Uh, So, you know, this, this, this acquirer, this investor, this, Which are renowned, they certainly believe that this is big, Um, and given what we're seeing, we don't believe that this is going to be a winner-takes-all market. So, um, probably worth going for it.
0: And this time, you decided to raise proper funding. Was it easy to get it?
1: It's it's never easy. Um, Raising money is never easy, Um, and so obviously, it takes a lot of efforts. It takes it takes a lot of a lot of effort, sorry um it takes a lot of rejections you know all the in, all investors um have so much they like most investors, especially the good ones, they have so much optionality
0: okay, but how did you turn this into a successful uh round then
1: yeah, so I knew that I knew that at my stage um my edge was my profile my my career, yeah. Um, and my my insights over the market that I was looking at addressing. And I leveraged that.
0: And that was one of your competitive advantages.
1: Yeah, you have to look at what what your competitive advantages are. And in my case, I knew that I was ahead of most other founders in Mm. terms of product. And I could show that I had a series of insights um relating to a specific market mm. that is big enough yeah. for, for a VC to uh be compelled with or compelled about, sorry. And that was that was enough. Yeah, okay. So
0: maybe if you uh rounding up questions uh how is your pm experience helping you now in running your company if at all
1: yeah so it's it's funny because both my clarin and my facebook pm experience are helping me and in different ways Mm. Um, because as i said before um pming at facebook is very macro yeah and pming at clarina is quite micro one is more strategic one is more um execution oriented and as a founder, you need both, because um, as a founder, you do everything. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: well, at least in this stage, right?
1: At least in this stage, exactly. You're right. Um, then there's you know s- scaling up and delegating and and all this all this uh, all this stuff. Um, but right now, it's it's certainly about both things. And um, my Facebook experience is helping me. Be more rigorous about strategy, about you know mm. what exactly you know where are we heading towards, what our north star is, yeah, uh, and, and, you know w- what's the mission and all these sort of things that are so important to keep everyone aligned. Mm. Um, without micromanaging, of course, because you know it, <laughs> micromanaging is a way to keep everyone aligned, but um, it it hurts your your long term prospects. <laughs> um, yeah. so. To uh, The only healthy way that I know of of keeping everyone aligned and rowing in the same direction is to ensure that your strategy or mission is crystal clear, that everyone buys into it. Yeah. So you know, Facebook really helped me um, brush up on that. Um, but then you still need to convert that strategy into actionable items. And, um, yeah. Especially when you're when you hire a team that's starting that comes from a different space mm-hmm. um who might not understand it as you do, you obviously need to handhold them a little bit. Um and that inevitably means that you have to um get into the micro a little bit. Yeah. And you know, there's all the tickets and feature planning sort of things. Uh-huh. Um that you need to be more granular with, and make sure there's no room for confusion, and the sort of things that, um, for instance, a PM at Klarna would be really good at doing.
0: Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me a bit more about the beta program you're running and what your approach is there.
1: We we're running a beta right now. Um, I mean, we we're still we're still in exploratory mode. Um. And we're still trying. You know, like when you when you start. Um And when you have a small team um meaning when your execution bandwidth is still relatively limited and your burn is low when you're very efficient capital efficient as a company, that's when you can afford and when you should definitely uh make sure you explore your problem space as exhaustively as you can because later on it might be too late the more the more you've built and the more you accumulate um, in terms of product the harder it is to take sharp turns um, in your direction your strategic direction Um, and you know being in beta and being in close beta allows you to uh, safely and slowly experiment um, without having too much responsibility over you know your users and over all of a sudden having too many users that you might not be able to manage. It helps you slowly scale, try out things uh, while still getting feedback and iterating and, and gathering more insights over your market and your space.
0: And how is the feedback you've been receiving so far? Are people crying that this is what they've been looking for?
1: Yeah. So, so there's, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a bit of everything, right? Like, um especially when you when it's so early and when you're just building the the first layers of the product um you're gonna find potential customers who need way more before they can come to you, mm-hmm. especially if you're in the internal tooling space where most companies will have invested into building something yeah um so obviously their bar is higher right mm-hmm. um but then the ones that do have a new need they don't have any tooling for especially where they don't have bandwidth for um, engineering um, development for in-house tools Uh, that is perfect for them Um, so there's a bit of everything but we definitely have a lot like every conversation brings up new things um, new requests Mm. Um, so there's definitely a lot that we have to build um there's definitely a lot of reliability that we still have to build into the product um so there's definitely a very long road ahead um for sure
0: cool and have you already thought about your go to market strategy
1: yeah that's that's something else that we're still figuring out because right now to get these first users most of most of them we we find them um through outbound sales sort of work like cold emailing, cold messaging, this sort of stuff. Um, That is something that at a small scale works, but at a large scale, it only works if the cost of doing that is still justified by your margins and by your unit economics of the Mm -hmm. product. And that is conditioned on what our future pricing model will be. And our future pricing model will be conditioned on the value that we bring, and most of these variables we haven't figured out yet um so it's it's hard to know what we're seeing is there there are other companies in adjacent spaces um appealing to you know um, operations teams for you know other purposes or um so our solutions out there that appeal to non-technical, non-technical people to build you know, things. Like you know, Webflow is an example, which lets, you, lets a non-developer build a website, right? Um, and and in, our, in a way, our tooling is a similar thing uh, because it lets non-technical people to build internal tools for manual workflows. Um, if you, for instance, look at these tools, what we've seen is that most of them take this inbound sort of marketing-led um, go-to-market um, and so maybe that's what we will go for, um, as opposed to, you know, sales, out on sales centric sort of go to market. Um, but it's so early, right? Like we're still exploring, we're looking at what's the best model, um, for our product and for our market and, and for getting to that market. So still lots of variables, still lots of unknowns, um, too early to tell. Uh, but here are some of the things that um, are definitely on my mind.
0: So in summary, a lot of exciting times ahead.
1: Definitely. All
0: right, man. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up here. Thank you very much for being here, for being part of the first Product and Founders podcast, <laughs> for being part of the MVP. How was it for you?
1: Um, yeah, it's been an honor to be here as the first interviewee i guess now after this podcast you have to tell me more about what you've been up to um (laughs) um but yeah it's been fun a lot of fun
0: all right man thanks again and then uh let's stop recording and then we can have a chat about all of the things i've been doing
1: cool sounds good man okay so let's let's stop pause stop recording yes
0: Woohoo! So that was Bernard in the first episode, aka the MVP of the Product and Founders podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit productandfounders.com, that is productandfounders.com, to sign up for the Product and Founders ebook with lessons from the most talented product managers and founders in the world about how to build great digital products. Next episode, we will have another friend of mine, Gulnaz, a female powerhouse and the founder of EasySize, a startup that offers AI-powered size and fit recommendations. We'll talk about her journey as a founder, being a female and immigrant in tech, and her first experience as an investor herself. See you next time.